Hello again, it's Chuck from Above the Basement Boston Music and Conversation. Before I begin, I am proud to announce that Above the Basement has been nominated for two 2020 Boston Music Awards, Music Podcast of the Year and Live Music Stream of the Year. We would, of course, love your vote. The nominees this year are crazy good, and we are excited but not surprised that so many former and future guests are also nominated. So just like in the upcoming election, your vote matters. Support us and Boston Music by voting at bostonmusicawards.com forward slash vote. Thank you for your support. I took a lovely drive to Western Massachusetts to sit alongside a flowing river with my new best friend, Erin McKeown. Okay, she might not be my best friend, but I certainly wish she was. Erin is a force of nature. A persistent, welcoming smile immediately put me at ease, so much so that we talked for almost two hours, which is why this episode is in two parts. We talk music, musical theater, writing, name dropping. COVID, hope, and other things too numerous to mention. Over the last few decades, Erin McKeown's unique voice and guitar playing has garnered her a loyal fan base, has grabbed the attention of Pulitzer Prize-winning playwrights, so that 10 times fast, has been awarded several Drama Desk Award nominations for her musical Miss You Like Hell, numerous other awards and residencies, a writing fellowship, and is now a professor of the practice at Brown University. Her most recent event was a live stream celebrating the 20th anniversary of her first album, Distillery, where she ceremoniously burned the dress she wore for the album cover and many promotional photos. The end of an era, but the beginning of another. As we finished the conversation, a huge blue heron flew right by us. Erin said it was an omen. I looked it up. The heron symbolizes stillness and tranquility and how these two things are needed to recognize opportunities. It also signifies determination, because there will be plenty of marshes and ponds that you will wade through in life as well. A great way to end the conversation. So, here is part one of my conversation with Aaron McCune, recorded in an undisclosed location in Western Massachusetts. Hello, Chuck. I like your ink. I just got oh, yeah. new ink. That. That's the time you're at the time of your life where it's new ink time. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Actually, I just got this. I got this in Greenfield. We were doing an episode with him. He's a musician. Yep. While he did my tattoo. Oh my god, that's awesome. Yeah. So we did that, that, and then I got this one done, and now I'm like kind of addicted to it. Are I those want, your first two? These are my first two. Yeah. My only two. It is pretty addicting. It's just I got to figure out what to do next. I don't know. These are these like right. I you need something bigger. Me. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. the most powerful part of your body, I think, to get a tattoo on. I mean, obviously, that's where mine are. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a, a big one across my chest, which like felt like a really good like next step. Like yeah. if you're looking next level, <laughs> like yeah. covering your chest yeah, with I something mean, might be. I don't know be. if I would cover, but I'm looking like me here. Yeah. Look at my arm. I yeah. Mean, but I haven't found out what I want to do yet. I, I wanted mine someplace where I could see them. Um, and someplace where they felt, especially playing music, I wanted to be able to see them when I was playing music. Yeah. This E on the inside of my left arm is the first one I ever got. So that's if you're playing guitar, you're looking right at it. When did you get it? 2000. Okay. Probably. And then, um, then the next one I got was this set of, um, letters and numbers that are on my right arm, which are, um... I would always, people would ask me what they are, and I would joke and be like, oh, it's my email address. Because <laughs> it kind of looks like a, like an email address. Yeah, I'll show you. Um, it kind of looks like an email address, but it's actually just um, a list of artists that are really important to me. Oh, cool. And then some dates and some more people that are important to me. Oh, wow. Um, so that was my next one. And then I wanted to go next level, and I got, um, I got this big plant on yeah. my right arm which is yarrow okay which is like a roadside weed that has lots of medicinal properties where i grew up in virginia it's, it's a really pretty really common plant and really important um and then on my left arm the next thing i did was uh purslane which is this uh great little like another weed a succulent weed that grows in sidewalks and cracks of places but you can put it in salads yeah it's really like a sharp delicious taste in a salad and then across my chest i have a big juniper okay which mostly because i i just think i love that plant it's like tenacious and like small and like scrubby and i like identify with it so yeah. i did you know, everything i've got is like a plant or a letter right, which is good. basically my life <laughs> and you don't and there's no color it's just kind of a bluish there's no color they're you know they're all black and now they're 
the newest one is over 10 years old, so they're all starting to fade. I've never wanted color, but I have thought about what the next one is, and it just hasn't it hasn't a, a, appealed to me yet. I would think maybe the next one I think is like the backs of my hands. Yeah. I think that's my next move, but now it's the pandemic, so it's going to be a second. Yeah. Actually, I think you can get a tattoo in the yeah, pandemic. Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah. You can. As a matter of fact, I had a big, huge beard, you know, a few months. I mean, I probably started growing it in January, but... Um, you know, it was pretty big, and uh, I need to. I'm like, I need to get a beard trim. I wanted to keep it long, right? But I know if I tried to do it myself, I'd butcher <laughs> it. But no, right. they weren't doing faces. Yeah, right. That's so, right. Um, I do remember so that. So yeah. I ended up just not doing anything, and I just had to clean house. So. Well, I was doing. I usually keep the sides of my head like completely shaved, like all the way down to the skin, and um, you know, it's a nice ritual with me in the barber shop and yeah. like every couple weeks I go and they just shave it down and it's like, it's great. Um, so obviously in the pandemic that wasn't happening. So I was doing it myself <laughs> for a while and I made some mistakes. And, I, um, I do mine myself. Yeah, that looks so, good. Do you, you have know. a, uh, electric? Oh, I have you... so many different things yeah, yeah, that I've yeah. tried. I oh, have... you should have brought them. You could have done mine for me. <laughs> I, I I'm due for a cut right now. <laughs> I would have. Uh, yeah, I have a, I have a balding razor, which is just the, oh, the pro that they use yeah. in the barber. Right. Um, that I use, but, um, I can even just use a dry razor. Yeah, no, I was razor. I was doing. I don't have an electric trimmer of any kind, so I was literally doing like razor and holding a mirror in one hand and a pair of mirrors and like <laughs> trying to figure out the the rest of it. And I made a few mistakes that are slowly correcting themselves. Uh, well, you know, I think you're the probably the only person who can see those mistakes but yeah but probably. I, mean, I don't i can't make the only thing mistake i can make is if i cut myself yeah I'm right just, well i have cut, i did cut bald. myself um a couple of times in the pandemic trying to do it with the razor because you know heads are not perfect heads have no, bumps have our, on them bumps in our heads. yeah i don't know if you know this this is a podcast about tattoos and hair oh my god well so <laughs> why has it been 162 episodes before you had I mean, me you would be amazed what kind of things we can talk about well i've i have a, a at some point I have an essay inside of me that I haven't had time to write yet that is, um, I think it's called like hair as Trojan horse, which is basically the most common compliment or comment or anything that I get either in person or online around my music yeah. is not about my music. It's about my hair. Really? Yeah. So after a show, people will be like, I just, I'm sorry. I just have to tell you your hair is so cool. Or I'll meet sort of young people and they're like, you have the coolest hair. I could see them like sort of about to say it. And um, the same thing happens online. If I put up a, a picture where like got my hair down or like I show like the how long my hair is or whatever, that is the most common comment. And I've been thinking about like, is that good or bad, right? Is that, yeah. good? Is that and I'm, I, I'll just take it as a compliment, but I wonder if there isn't some way that I can turn that into something like, is there like hair activism <laughs> that I could do I mean I don't, I don't know I mean I guess it's somewhat unusual to see someone with like I I don't know I've I've seen people describe their own hair as Aaron McKeown-esque and I feel like I have achieved something <laughs> that's excellent nobody <laughs> uh no bald guy ever says I've turned Chuck Clowish. Oh, you have the nice you have the nice um salt and pepper I do is, I got that going for me yeah and, which and I, which I have going for me as well and have been very pleased to yeah. keep going. Uh, yeah, with. I love it. I yeah. love it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's the only hair I got and I think if the uh if the gray can look make me look a little more distinguished, I'll, <laughs> I'll take all the help I can get. I know. Definitely. That's how I feel about it. And it's actually been going really fast for me in the pandemic like um uh, if I look at pictures from March, you know, cause the thing about the pandemic for me has been like, I've done a ton more videos, a yeah. ton more, um, visual or, or like live streams or anything like that than I usually do. Uh -huh. And I go back and look at March and I look at now September and I'm like, Oh my God, it is going so fast. The gray. <laughs> it's the pandemic gray. I've, I look like I've aged about 20 years. <laughs> I mean, I think March, we all but... have, right. I think our whole country has. Well, you know, it's and it's funny since we are talking about hair. I think I just saw Annie DeFranco. Yeah, she Didn't did. Did you just shave her head yeah. in a video or something? Yeah, it was so interesting. She has a really great new video. Um, I don't remember the name of the song, but it's about voting. And in it, the the video is directed by Zoe Bookbinder. They are a really great filmmaker and lives in New Orleans and a great singer-songwriter. That's how I know them. And uh -huh. um, they directed the video. And in it, Ani stands in front of her mirror and, like, truly shaves her head. It. And yeah. we're back to, like, 1991, like, first cassette. <laughs> and um, it's really trippy and awesome and gorgeous and brave and striking and a perfect to pair something like that that could be like a stunt 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. Ani shaves her head again. Stunt yeah. with a call to action with voting. Yeah. With a, it's real. It's brilliant. And you know, and also, I don't know if you know Molly, Molly Tuttle. I only know the name. So she is alopecia. Oh right, yeah. like Ayanna Presley. Exactly. Like our and, wonderful Massachusetts and, Congresswoman. And Molly's been. I mean, I don't want to call her brave because she's. It's just but, right. But you know, it, it takes a guts to to do that. Yeah. And. And uh, she's been very out front about it, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. Show your, show your colors. Show your colors. Use it for something great. Um, yeah, for someone like Ayanna Presley, who's so, um, we have such a visual record of her, yeah. so we, we really see the difference. We yeah. really know. But she was so open about it and about the effort and the shame, yeah. the, both of those things, and yeah. um, she just did it really well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad we finally got to do this. I know. We had a bunch of back and forth. Well, I'm not, it wasn't even just recently. I mean, I think we've been in touch with you for a few years. years. Yeah, I, I don't remember when it was. I don't remember. I mean, it might have been right in the very beginning. I think I, like when I, I mean, we started this in 2016, and that was when um, I was kind of reaching out to, uh, turn me up here, I was reaching out to just a whole bunch of Boston people. But yes, you've been on our, you've been, you've been starred on our list. we got to get Aaron... <laughs> On. But I bet you didn't say we have to drive out to Western Mass and sit by the river that she lives well, on. Well, <laughs> if I had known this was going to be it, I would have done it. We've been out here a couple of times. I told you we were out here for Lisa Bastoni. We were out here for Jim Olson at Signature oh, Sounds. Oh, yeah, of course, right. I have a friend named Tony DiTerlizzi. He did the art. He wrote the uh, the Spiderwick Chronicles. You know that movie? I know the name, yep. And he's out in Amherst. So, yeah, there are a lot of you people out here. This house it's that gorgeous. we are at right now is equidistant from Jim Olson's house and Chris Delmore's house. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Uh, yep. <laughs> yep. For a long time. That's great. We didn't, yeah. I only got to, we went to the, the parlor. Yep. That's where we talked to Jim. Which is a great room. And, uh, you know, the cabin fever episode that we're going to talk about, um, was supposed to, it was supposed to be a show at the parlor room. Oh, really? Yeah. In, uh, March. And of course the pandemic happened. Mm-hmm. And, um, there was that moment where, I don't know if you had this moment, but I had a moment in March where everyone was like, everything will be fine by June. That's what I thought. Yeah. So I rescheduled this show in March for June. And then, um, you know, I'm by early May, everybody understood, I think, what was going to happen. And so um, it actually ended up being a blessing because uh, I decided to... I wasn't going to celebrate the 20th anniversary of distillation in any huge way. I was just going to do this show at the parlor room. I was going to film it and then eventually do maybe something with it. But because the pandemic happened and because we couldn't meet in person, I decided to do the show online through the series that I've had forever from this house. Yeah. And now so many more people are going to get to experience it. And it's going to end up being... Maybe a more fitting tribute to the record. Maybe, I mean, certainly a, like a more unique experience um, than just if we had, I mean, the parlor room's great, but if we had just played a show at the parlor room. Well, I, love, I mean, you're sitting, you're standing in the river and you're, you're right here. Yeah, and it's, we've, we haven't done an episode. I've done from the river, from my porch, the living room, various parts of my living room. I did one in the side yard and I think this one's going to be in the side yard. I like it. Where uh, can I build a fire is yeah. the question because <laughs> we're going to do it around a campfire. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Um, you know, we were going to do, you know, because venues were hurting so badly over the summer, we started a project called Boston Live, where I've hired a film crew to come and tape, and I wanted to have Boston musicians uh, film in the empty venues. And the idea was we promote the venue, the musician, and we give people a way to hear some music with some better video rather than right. what we all Single are laptop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which um, I'm pretty tired of, too, at this I point. I know. It yeah. is. It's tough, for, it's tough for us, and it's, and it's tough for the people online. You know, it was novel when we first started, but well, now it's like... Oh, yeah, I, I mean, it was novel out. in 2009 when I first started live <laughs> yeah. streaming. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I did it with... We well, um, were no pro by the time this happened. Well, yeah, I, I did it with my first live streaming get-up. There was... I didn't even have an interface it was literally the mic on my laptop the camera on my laptop which was a 2009 or older macbook or something and um and you know an ethernet cable because there was no wireless you (laughs) forget when all this technology came around and and you could you didn't you had to watch it via uh an app Ustream, 
which then you could embed in a website. So that was how my first ones were all done was by this like first TV production app called Ustream. Uh-huh. I used that for years. And then I switched to, um, you know, like a Google Hangout or I've done YouTube or Facebook. And now um, this time I'm using Zoom. Zoom. Yeah. yeah. I use StreamYard. I love StreamYard. Which, yep. is, which is great. The thing that, the reason I chose um, Zoom for this particular project was I wanted to be able to see people's faces, you know, to be able to scroll through. We're going to have, you know, about 300 people on it. And so, like, to be able to scroll through and see all those faces is going to be really great. So, I mean, I don't know. There's so much I want to talk to you about because I knew about you, but I had no idea you had done, I had no idea you had done musical theater. I can't remember how I heard about it, but you would, you're writing another one. Yeah, writing another one. Yep. As I was saying before we turned this on, I talked to Chris Delmhorst. We did it at Clepasine. Rose Ponzani. I met Rose through Subrosa, and that's how that's how I met a whole bunch of people. It's how I got Alistair Mook. It's how I got Lisa. But anyway, she so she was my co-host, and her and Kristen got along like peas in a pod. They've known each other forever. Yeah. But how did you play with Rose? How did that work out? I believe. I think it starts at like Falcon Ridge Folk Festival in 1997. Okay. There was, it used to be a, a Chicago based record label called Waterbug Records uh-huh. years and years and years ago, run by um, this guy named Andrew McKnight. And I met him at Falcon Ridge and played for him, and we hit it off. Two things happened. He said, You should know about this artist in Chicago, Rose Polanzani. And you should come live with me and intern and work at my record label. So I did that the next summer, and that's when I met Rose. And Rose and I were fast friends and played music together. She was living in Chicago, where she'd grown up, Evanston. And I was living in Providence because I was in college. And then she came east to play Club Passim, like her first Club Passim gig. Uh-huh. And I went to like support her and see her and, of course, go to the great mecca that was Club Passim, which was the mountaintop especially in the late 90s and if you were a singer-songwriter wanting to get started in the northeast which I was and she um, introduced me to her manager who became my manager that started this whole series of things which resulted in a band called Voices on the Verge which Rose and I were in Mm -hmm. with two other songwriters for about four years we made a record did a ton of touring and I met Chris Dumhorst through that relationship I met Lori McKenna through that relationship Megan Tui all of us were in this burgeoning Boston folk scene not burgeoning it was well established but we right. were like the new kids coming exactly. into it because who was already there Jonathan Brooke Mary Gaucher Vance Gilbert like all of those folks Susan Warner were already yeah. like doing all that and here we were this next generation coming in and um I have really vivid memories and you, you might remember this but there used to be these um big shows at the Somerville Theater that were like variety shows where they would have like 10 of us like emerging singer songwriters on one night at the Somerville Theater and we'd share a house band and so to be someone who was just barely playing club has seem open mic and then get to go and play like three songs at the Somerville Theater was such a big deal and that's how I made friends with all those people and that's 1997 1998 and um eventually like Rose moves east I move out to Western Mass. Chris Dunmore's moves out here. She was in Boston at the time. We've all stayed in some sort of orbit of each other for, you know, more than 20 years now. We were really young, too. I mean, I'm not saying that to be funny. Like, we were really young. We were like 19, 20, 21, 22 years old when this was happening. You know, I I always say, and I said, uh, you know, up to you up there, that it's it's two degrees. And I think that the the music community in Boston is, is so... I, I don't know. I don't want to say unique because I can't. I don't know enough about the other cities to to know, but it's it's close. It's close knit, and it's not even just about folkies with folkies. It's it's it seems to be all mixed up, different genres, different parts of the city. I've seen that more and more. I would say. I mean, I would agree with you, and I've never lived in Boston. You know what I mean? People think I have because I was so closely associated with this group of folks. But I've lived in Providence. I grew up in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Then I moved to Providence, and then I moved out here to Western Mass. But even as someone on the periphery geographically of that scene, it is such a warm, inviting, collaborative situation, especially during those years when everybody was getting started, before people had families, before people had partners. There was a lot of invitation. There was a lot of overlap. There was a ton of collaboration. And um, no, I can't say if that's unique in a certain way to Boston or not. But for me, it's it was the center of a certain kind a certain moment in my career. And everyone's on everyone else's album. It's like, it's great. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, it's lovely like that. I mean, I've never been someone that's been 100% two foot in part of a scene, 
But that was the closest thing that ever came to that for me. Let's talk about the cabin fever. Just tell me about it. Tell me what. What's... I was I was trying to raise money for a record. So you might appreciate this. I had made a record called Hundreds of Lions, mm -hmm. and I had made it with Sam Kassir, who is a producer and part of this whole scene that we're talking about. He uh, played with Josh Ritter for years okay. and has produced records for all the people that you've just talked about. Right. And uh, I had made a record with him called Hundreds of Lions in 2008, and we were finishing up in early 2009, and I didn't know how I was going to pay for it. I was not on a label at the time. I wasn't sure if the record could be on a label. And I thought, how could I raise money for this record? This is like before Kickstarter. This is before Patreon. Yeah. This is before crowdfunding was like even a thing in the industry that it is now. Okay. And um, I was at a baseball game at um, Safeco Field in Seattle. Okay. <laughs> Watching like the Mariners. And I forget, I was on tour and I love to go to baseball on tour. And um, I remember sitting up in the stands and just being like, wait, what if we just did like a house rent party and put it on the internet? And that's that's basically it, like a house concert on the internet. What year is this? Two thousand nine. Okay. And um and so that July of two thousand nine, I did one a week, four weeks in a row, and had people just do PayPal donations. That was you know free to watch. Please donate. And um I don't remember what I raised, but it was enough. It was enough to do. And I called it Cabin Fever, and um you know I never imagined it being a long running series. I thought it would just be this like four part thing to raise money for the record, but. You know, I think maybe a couple years later, uh, I'm trying to remember what the fifth one was. I think the fifth one was about sports, actually. It might have been like Super Bowl Sunday okay. or something. And I was just like, I'm just going to play a bunch of songs about sports and put it on the internet. You know, I, can, I wish I could remember off the top of my head what they all were. I have I've done a Christmas special. Um, I did one of, of musical theater songs and Broadway songs. <laughs> right. um, I've done one that was um, debuted new songs on Cabin Fever for the first time. Um, and then just this spring when the pandemic happened, I was like, well, this is like, you got to do a cabin right, fever. Right. And so I did one at the end of March that was, um, <laughs> let's co-video together was what it was called. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really, it was like this, like, you know, a, a trying to trying to find a creative way to raise some money that felt like offering value to people who are watching it. Yeah. I love the idea of making like a homespun show. I obviously live in like a really extraordinary, picturesque spot and the thing I thought about the least was the technology of it and that has always lagged behind yeah. the ambition of it but we made it work I mean I think it's such a great way for musicians to connect with their fans and it's like a very personal way too I mean it's like it's my house this is it's my your house, house. <laughs> and you know who knows how many people are on actually watching you doing it I think the other thing for me is like it, it was both like radical in a sense sure it was and of the like um, this was like the dawn of social media so it was like still like a smoke and mirrors age where like you didn't want to tell people what you ate or you didn't want people to have <laughs> yeah. like a 10 every 10 that minutes wasn't like, a thing back like there was not a thing and so to take someone to your house and to show it you know warts and all um was really vulnerable and uh, an invitation and really intimate but on the other hand it's not radical at all because for centuries most people played music in their homes. That's right. That was mostly where people were having concerts. It was like, your home might be a palace, okay, but like in the parlor after dinner, you know, like just this making music in a home setting and making music in a home setting to raise money is also not radical. I know. You have the 20s, 30s, 40s, you have house rent parties, um, especially in African-American tradition, barn raisings, similar things like that. So... In that sense, it wasn't radical, but I do I do have to say, like, in the pandemic, I have had a little bit of, like, y'all, I've been doing this for a while. <laughs> I have had a little moment of, like, nothing y'all are doing is radical yeah. because yeah. I have actually been doing some version of this. You know, you mentioned writing a musical, and um, I wrote my entire musical on Skype. So, like, video conferencing and collaborating and having meetings on Skype is, like, Nothing, nothing new to me either yeah i'm glad just glad more people understand now you can do this this is why i live in western massachusetts it's because of video technology yeah i don't have to live in boston i don't have to live in new york and you can have a career we did something called together at home sessions where we had once COVID started we tried to raise money for the musicians so the musician could get on and do the, just like club piscine you did one for club piscine yeah that's right i can't remember what it was called uh 
I don't remember, but it was a great round with um, Lyle it's, Brewer and Dinty Child right. and Margaret Glassby. They're actually nominated for a Boston Music Award. Oh, good. For, for doing that. that. For doing that. So, oh, am, so am I for that. Not, oh, good. You know. Congratulations. But, uh, you know, Will Daly? I know the name. He raised like $40,000 for venues. Oh, that's amazing. Right when yeah. COVID started, he started just playing and he raised a ton of money. You it know, I went to the Boston Music Awards one time. <laughs> uh, I got nominated years and years ago early 2000s and i went it was at the orpheum and (laughs) i'd never been anything like that before and um and i got really dressed up and like (laughs) expected it to be like really formal and it was like a total shit show it was (laughs) like it was like somewhat televised this is very early yeah people were like talking the whole time and it was like basically like open bar like shit show and everybody just like partying and talking i was like but there's awards going on no one gave a shit no it's very different now it's like basically a concert and they show, well, I mean, that's, it's all going to be virtual now. Right. And they would show a film that would say, and now for our Oh, yeah, a little, year. like, a little video package yeah. of, like, the nominees. And and then, then the rest of the show would be artists just playing. It's Great. It was, yeah, so we're nominated for Podcast of the Year, too. That's awesome. I've never won anything in my life. So that's I'm so hoping cool. to, I want to get that trophy. <laughs> Do you all want to make I a want speech? Is a <laughs> I may just even buy myself a trophy. You just, should. Just for the hell of it, because I don't have you any trophies. You know what trophies. you should do is you should actually print out the trophy emoji. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> An actual printer. Are there trophy emojis? There should be a trophy emoji. There is a trophy emoji. Right, yeah, cool. I use it all the time. My point was, when the pandemic first started, a lot of artists, I could tell, they weren't used to doing this thing, like playing to a impersonal camera. But now I see, you know, they're starting to get much, much better at it, and it's the new normal right now. I, You know, I have always loved it i have to say i mean i certainly love playing live for people it's great to like be in a room and yeah. something happens to me in front of people like i become a ham and it's great you know <laughs> like i say the smartest things i've ever said and i don't know why and it's just a, it's nice um but there's something about being able to like sit on my couch i have some nice headphones in the sound sounds exactly how i want it to sound yeah. it's not like some squawking box that's coming out of the floor at my feet um that doesn't sound like me and uh and because of like for example that round that i did for passim i've done a bunch of different rounds like that with artists that like i haven't had a chance to see in a long time yeah. and it's actually been really great for collaboration and um obviously passim is for example is famous for the campfire fest and and doing all those rounds and and i i just right before the pandemic i did the 30a festival in uh florida which yeah. is really i've been wanting to do that for years so it's exciting and that's all things in the round but these rounds online they honestly just feel just as good to me and i'm just as comfortable if not more so. That's great. I love being invited into people's living rooms like like that. So Yeah, do you do you look at like people's backgrounds? Well, you know, the <laughs> one the the one thing I I noticed when I was looking at yours was I can't wait to see your house. That's the first thing yeah. I cuz you have those blue bottles yeah, outside. That's, that's right. The, that's right. The blue bottles. I'm like, "Oh, I bet you some really cool stuff in there. Yeah, house. well, for those listening, um I have a big window on the side of my house that's probably It's huge. 7 foot by 15 foot yeah it's big and uh it's basically my tv i mean i just sit in front of it and just watch what happens out to the rivers right outside and uh it's got some blue bottles lining it and uh your house is a good house for show and tell too it is right you yeah. can like pull stuff off the wall and this yeah no that's people see it i've always wanted to have a house like that i mean i remember going to visit um i had a few artists who were really important to me when i was sort of forming and they were like on Cape Cod, for example, and I remember going out to their houses on Cape Cod, and they had yeah. these like kind of like cool retro dune shack vibe. Yeah, yeah, you know. So they had like some some like interesting electric lights, but also like a giant seashell hanging <laughs> on the wall, or yeah. like you know a hammock from the ceiling, and then a picture of a clown from 1910. <laughs> you know? I love that eclectic stuff. <laughs> yeah, great. so I always imagined being able to have a space like that, and uh, now I do. Now you do distillation. It's the what, it's the twenty year 20th anniversary. anniversary. So it's October tenth, and that is literally the 20, 20 year anniversary of the day that the record came out. October tenth, the record came out on Signature Sounds in two thousand. Was my first record. It was my first record deal. It was my first time with a manager, and it was you know my first 
experience of putting together a group of songs and saying this group of songs should be together and they're going to sound this way and the whole thing is going to have a name. I mean, certainly done recording before that yeah. and um, cassettes. I was really into cassettes. <laughs> and, um, that's what they, that's I know, what we now had. it's back. Now it's back. That's what we had. But uh, it's also, you know, the year 2000 was a really different time in the music industry. So if you put out an album in the year 2000, there was a real stepwise way that you could grow something. I don't mean to sound like get off my lawn old lady about it, but the fact that you could sell a record for $15 really ran the engine of this whole thing it you know it bought you gas it allowed you to print more cds it gave you an object that people could take home with you and that was just this like meat of the music sandwich that allowed me to then get a bigger record deal to make a more elaborate album to play like bigger shows and now it's there's there isn't much in the middle yeah it turned it's turned into a gig economy for, for everybody, <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, for you sure. have you have to gig, and to a certain extent, I think it's it's been good for a musician's soul totally. to have to gig. The other side of that coin is you've lost that way to make money, which is why which is why the COVID was so devastating to musicians around here because or anywhere because they lost the gig economy to being able to do that. Yeah, I agree. I. I'm, I don't know why I am always looking for silver linings because I do not well, no, think I like of myself as that kind of person. More I really don't. But, um, but I do think, just listening to what you're saying and agreeing with you, but I also think, you know, it's been good for me to do things in my life besides play music or at least besides um, drive around and play shows. So, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I started teaching. You know, first it was a local girls' rock camp, and I found that I liked it and was good at it. So yeah. I started having private students or doing more workshops or going to a college or a school and pairing a concert with a workshop. And that end has ended up turning into being, you know, a part-time professor, yeah. which is really great. But it was also really good for me to go write a musical, to go write something else, to do something besides to feed myself in some way besides just having to play gigs and live or die by whether I got a gig or not or right. how many people came to that gig. And, um, you know, if like I was saying, like the, the middle of the music business is, is disappeared now, if you're starting out, you've got to be something else and a musician. Yeah. And I, I don't necessarily think that's bad. When I think of my young students, I'm like, you know what, that's great if you're actually a historian and a musician. That's only good for your music. And people are like, well, when should I quit my day job? And the answer is like only when you have to, only when you absolutely cannot. Yeah cannot find the time you right. know and not hang on to it as long as you can and i don't know just if i can tie it all back into a neat bow to the pandemic but i certainly don't wish any of like this suffering and unemployment and hardship that's been mm. happening to musicians but there's ways to ride it out that i think are going to be good for us the best musicians i know are the well-rounded ones they're the ones who have causes that they support I'd be hard pressed to know of one musician that we've talked to who doesn't have some sort of cause that they've done. But a lot right, of, publicly a lot, or privately. Yes, exactly. And right. but I find that musicians who who do that are better musicians. And also the best musicians know their history. They know some obscure, you know, musician who started the genre that they're playing and they just <laughs> right. and they just know their history. And I think that also they do other things. Whether it be you know Dana Colley from from Morphine, yep, he's, he's an artist. You, you know, people are writers, and you know, you did the musicals. Yeah, talk about the musical. How did you decide to do that? That's something. Did you grow up in musicals? <laughs> Were you doing musicals? No, or? I I grew up admiring. So I grew up in this little town in Virginia, and not really tied to like mainstream or popular culture like I didn't know what day records came out I didn't know what the latest book was I just knew what like the high school musical was that year what my church was singing right. what the like hospital auxiliary sang for their fundraiser you know what my dad's barbershop quartet was doing yeah and musical theater was just part of that yeah. it was just like there was a community theater and there was the high school musical and did you do it did you do it? no theater? because I was too afraid yeah. I I grew up like terrified of being on stage I don't know why and so I would always go to see these and I would love the music and I would love the plays like I, I and my parents would sometimes take us um, to DC which was sort of the nearest big town yeah. and we'd see really good theater there but I I was always like I could never I want to do that but I could never do that I was too afraid and um, at the end of high school 
I um, I had started playing music and I started writing songs, but I wouldn't play it for anybody. I wouldn't perform for anyone. Um, and I saw an advertisement at like the Parks and Rec Center that was like a, a, a like a contest um, to like do a little talent show, and it was like at my high school. And I was like, well, maybe I can manage that. And so that was anyway. This, a tangent but I, I ended up winning that contest <laughs> and the prize was to get to play at my town's little first night uh oh yeah and so then I had to come up with three hours Be of music careful what you wish for I know I had to come up with three hours of music um which I had maybe six original songs, and then the rest was Dave Matthews Band and Indigo Girls songs. <laughs> That's it. Maybe like an Almond Brothers song that sounded good. Solo acoustic. You had to play for how long? Three hours, because three it was hours. like a first night gig. It was a bar gig, basically. Yeah, yeah. So it's like you had a, um, three different one-hour sets for yeah, the okay. different like time Still, slots. That's a long time. For I know anybody. for an 18-year-old who'd never played before. But anyway, because of the confidence I gained winning that contest yeah. i then did my senior musical that year it's what was it <laughs> rogers and hammerstein cinderella cinderella it's a terrible musical oh really yeah it's the this is maybe too technical but it's the musical where like when people talk about the music of west side story yeah. which is obviously incredible um and complicated and tonally like very interesting to take what's happening and 20th century music and put it in musical theater in the way that Leonard Bernstein did. Right. Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella comes after that, and it's a pale imitation of it. Oh, really? Yeah, and they they particularly, there's, I'm sure you've heard of this, but there's the interval to flat five, yeah. and um, which is a, historically a dissonant interval. And it's like somehow Rodgers and Hammerstein felt like if they just made a musical where the flat five was like the theme, that they would be doing something more ambitious really that's my read on the whole thing and um and they also wrote the musical i just learned this recently but they wrote it for julie andrews to be on tv so it was never huh. meant to be a stage musical it was always a tv musical yeah. so anyway i played an evil stepsister ah. <laughs> it was really fun actually <laughs> anyway um that's it that's the only musical i've ever been in and i've just been a fan i did a musical in, in high school i did uh my, my junior senior i did the king and i oh that's good and for and then problematic but good yes yes <laughs> and then i did the um princess no not the princess and the p it's basically on the princess and the p oh, i can't remember what it's called i can't think of it either once upon a mattress oh right <laughs> yeah right once good. upon the mattress um <laughs> and I, it was a lot of fun i liked doing that i mean but, what i loved about it was i loved the camaraderie yeah. i loved like the rehearsals um I, I loved all of that. It's the and theater. It's, you know, yeah, and it's very it's different than singer-songwriter world, which oh, is very. very alone, very driving alone. It's it's um, it's um collaborative, but you hardly ever get 20 people in a room. You might get four people in a round. Um, and you're not making things together in that same way. Anyway, that's all a tangent to say that I was a fan, but not a participant. Yes. Um, and in 2011, I got, I got a random email um, through the standard email catch-all on my website that was um so hello my name is Kiara Hudes um I have written a musical called In the Heights and I would like to make a musical with you <laughs> I did not know who she was I did not know what In the Heights was which is if if your listeners don't know it's Lin-Manuel Miranda's first musical okay so Kiara had written the book for it and Lynn had written the music and lyrics for it and it was a big success and they've won many Tonys with okay. it so she's coming so she's, she's coming like she's straight from the nobody. top right, yeah right. she's not nobody and she's confident to did tell did you know me this that. at the time though that she wasn't a nobody no I had no idea <laughs> like I that. mean she wrote in her email I have a Tony so alright I'll take you seriously right. um, but she wrote this email as if I was getting many emails <laughs> yes. from people asking me to make a musical of course and, um, yes so I must choose between these ten yes uh, but no I'd never gotten an email like that in my life I played it cool you know I was just like great let's let's meet <laughs> let's talk well I don't mean to diss you yeah but why did she get in touch with you she got in touch with me because no that's a, that's a fair question she had a play called 26 miles that okay. was about a road trip that a mother and a daughter take and she knew that it should be a musical so she was thinking she wanted a female composer uh -huh. she was thinking she wanted a female composer whose music was like propulsive and rhythmic and and forward-thinking and who understood the road so she was asking around and around in her theater community and not finding anyone who was already in the theater community who was writing the kind of music that she was interested in yeah. so she asked a friend give me 10 female singer-songwriters and i was on this friend's list for whatever reason of just having you know 
consistently made good records for 10 years at that time. She had heard my record, Hundreds of Lions, and she was like, this is what the musical should sound like. So that's why she wrote to me. Interesting. And, um, so it's so the sound of it was the sound, that album that yeah, and, said this is where I want to go. And so when we sat down, and this is what I would totally recommend to anyone who's starting to write a musical. I mean, the way we did it is so wise. But we sat down, we had lunch together, and I just liked her as a person and like she could have asked me to do anything and I would have said yes because I just felt like she's clearly a brilliant artist she's a good person we have a good vibe together Mm -hmm. and those are the two things I care about I don't care if someone is like really famous I don't care if they have like a crazy good track record or they have a lot of money like at this point I just want to do interesting things with interesting people so she gave me the script and I already knew I was going to say yes but I did read the script and circled things I thought should be songs and and um and that's how it started and that was 2011 and for the first year of our collaboration all we did was send songs back and forth to each other we had a like a combined Spotify playlist and we were just sharing songs she was like listen to this song by this artist I think it might sound good in this spot and I'd send something and then we also had my record to work from yeah so we had a a shared musical language that we built through making mixtapes essentially for each other before we ever wrote a word of the thing huh. and we really got to know each other as people and as artists making a musical is it is so intense it's by far more intense than any other creative project I've ever done huh. it's like we write songs and we make albums and I've been doing that for 25 years and they are like little jewels like little handheld jewels of like three minutes of distilled thought and it's an incredible art form and it's not easy but then you have a musical which is like a 20 foot blank wall that you are penciling in for seven years and you don't put the final paint on until the night before it opens off Broadway because you've run out of money and the union says you have to stop (laughs) like it's a completely different process and the scale of it was so different and um, so if you're gonna do that with somebody like you better make sure that you like them, yeah. that you can communicate with them, that they're a person that you want to be family for the rest of your life because right. it is way different than having someone sing harmony on your record. It's, all, it's also <laughs> like a whole different way of writing. you got to write awesome. the lyrics and the music yeah. to fit within the story. It's, it's like a five-dimensional crossword puzzle, basically. That's yeah, how I yeah. that's how I thought about that's it. Really, I like that analogy. Yeah, it's like you move one thing on this one axis, and it turns out something on this other axis, and then there's just one axis you can't even see that's like you have to keep in mind at the same time. And I never knew how to rewrite before I made this musical. Mm. I never knew how to write a shitty draft before this musical. All of those things I had to learn. I'm used to like set it and forget it or like what we do in the in the singer songwriter world which is just like talk about it for five minutes before we go on stage and go do it and then never do it again and there's i'm not disparaging that process at all it's so freeing and beautiful and great and spontaneous and i'm all for that process but this was so different so so different and it's completely changed me like i'm a better writer because i had to learn how to sit with something that wasn't right and make it right yeah it's really hard to describe how large an experience it was but um i don't usually i don't usually do this but i'm gonna name drop okay go for it (laughs) i don't know if your podcast like has a like a sound effect when someone name drops oh we'll figure out something now 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 i need one but go ahead so in order to our our musical was done at the public theater Uh which is a a really venerated important off-Broadway institution in I've New been York. there? Yeah. A friend who lives right across the street. Gorgeous, right? And historic and some of the most important theater in America has been made there. So it was a real honor to be doing our work there. Mm-hmm. But it is incredibly expensive. It's millions of dollars. It costs millions of dollars to put a musical in the small room there. We were looking at like a two plus million dollar budget. Right. Which, you know, I make my records for like $15,000. Yeah. So like, um, and people don't pay for them. So, um, <laughs> anyway, we had to do a bunch of what what I would call like, um, you know, they're dog and pony shows. So go to like very rich people's apartments yeah. and play for them. You know, we talk about music in the home. This is another 
thing musicians have done for hundreds of years is go play at some rich person's house and then pass the hat. Right. And so we did a number of those. And um, one of them was at a building next to Trump Tower on a 14th or 15th floor of Wilking Central Park, like with like Lichtensteins, like on the wall. Like, this is crazy shit. Yeah. Usually we'd bring a couple actors and I'd play, I'd play and, uh, you know, Kiara would come and talk about the songs that we do our little presentation and we were about to start and someone said can we wait um we're waiting for sting <laughs> so we waited for sting and uh, so sting, sting arrives with his wife and he also arrives with shaggy We interviewed Shaggy <laughs> for home based podcast that Ron does. Yeah. Shaggy's a vet. Oh, right, of course. There and, you go. And so we talked to him. But he he's is, a very that's nice right. man. Yeah. He's extremely nice man. So Sting, and at the time they were doing some reggae project together. Okay. So, oh, that's right. They were doing the reggae project. Yeah, it was just they a couple years ago. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. So I didn't know that at the time. I was just like, why no, is Sting totally. walking with yeah. Shaggy? Anyway, so, so we walk in and we do our presentation, and like, there's lots of people we don't know. And then, of course, in the corner, there's like Sting and Shaggy. And, um, went very well and there was like a, a dinner afterwards that we were you know all supposed to go to and and in the sort of cocktail hour between the presentation and the dinner like sting comes up to me and, and is just like that was really great because you know he's written a musical yeah yeah and he had a pretty rough ride of it actually it was it's a lovely musical it's called the last ship and it's right. wonderful and yeah. he wrote it with stellar people and he did an amazing job and he even like took a turn starring and i mean it's an extraordinary project uh but it just didn't didn't happen anyway so so i know he writes musicals and i had actually seen a quote from him in another article about what he thought was hard about writing musicals yeah what did he say well he said something similar i mean he was just like it's like a puzzle that you are constantly solving from all angles so basically you know i talked to sting for like 15 minutes about how hard it is to write musicals and so you have someone who's got that level of fame and success and experience that he has in pop music, like seminal creation of almost what we know as like modern pop music. And he and I are just sitting there being like, man, it is so hard to write one of these fuckers. And it was a really, it was a really special moment for me because to, to be able to sit peer to peer and talk about this particular art form, which is so unique and so difficult and then at the end of the conversation, he mentioned one of the songs that we played. He was like, that's a really good song. And I was like, well, thank you so much, Sting. And then he was like, I'm going st- to steal that. And I was like, come on, man. Let him steal it. Take, <laughs> the, take the royalties credit, out of it. Sting. But all of that is to say it was a, a really incredible experience as an artist to, to try something so new like that. And at the same time, all the things that I've learned as a touring singer songwriter also came into play. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I am really good at just like standing in someone's living room and playing a song. And I am, you know, great at a talk back for an audience. And I am great at talking to pit musicians and getting everybody to sound like a band, you know? So all these skills that I have from working as a singer songwriter were really great to bring to theater what almost rewires your brain i had to recover from it for sure like (laughs) i had to it opened in 2018 i had never had bad reviews on the level that are music in terms of the outlets we we got a um we got great reviews from some places but the new york times one which is basically says who who did that one was it ben no it was jesse green okay yeah so it wasn't i think we would have fared better with ben brantley but but jesse green basically said this is good it should be better they should know it should be better and instead of looking at as what most off-broadway musicals are which is especially with the team that we had as a work in progress yeah as a stepping stone i mean our musical certainly had a chance to move on yeah i do think we were sort of damned by faint praise Uh. sort of a middling review is the thing you don't want you either want it to be a rave obviously or like a complete pan is also very useful because then you can just be like fuck that guy yeah you know like (laughs) and and you rally around how how much they missed the boat so we sort of ended up in the middle um the point for me is I, i had to recover and i had to remember how to write songs where they're could be nothing happening and it was okay well did it change you did it change your absolutely did it change how you write absolutely yeah it, i have songs from years and years and this circles back to distillation where 
Uh, there are lines in songs on Distillation and, and throughout the rest of my records up to up to just a couple years ago where I don't really know what I was talking about. It's yeah. just a bunch of words that sounded good and sounded great with a melody. And there's, yeah. there's nothing wrong with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But after writing the musical, I can no longer tolerate that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's well, the it's difference. A, you're evolving. And so, yeah, I totally get that. <laughs> that's the difference. Um, and it took me a second to regain my center because I was writing for the particular sound and experience and necessity of our musical for so many years it took me a while to regain the center of like what are the songs that I want to write about as me and um I finally back on track but it took me a while to figure that out and in the meantime I wrote another musical (laughs) is how I did it I wrote another musical where I wrote the book music and lyrics all of it just to sort of like close in and like lock myself inside a creative room in a sense to just I have to make every single choice so now I am living in like I'm stewing in my own choices yeah I don't have to compromise with anyone I don't have to solve a stage problem just what gives me pleasure what are my choices and it's you know it's at this point it's not a good musical no musical is good in its first draft like never and I've I saw one of the first workshops of Hamilton right it was good but like it got better. Yeah. So I have a like a kind of shitty musical that will someday be a good musical, but that was the way I, I transitioned back. I like that you said, you know, sometimes you, you use words and they just sounded good. My own band came out with an album and, you know, some of the lyrics are mean nothing, but some people are going to be like, oh, yeah, that really speaks to me. Right. And that's great. And I'm also of the mind of, you know, you talk about how you, you write the song for the musical and... You know, you just got to keep on tweaking and tweaking and tweaking and tweaking. I like to see scars and mistakes. I like to see yeah. the flaws and how that works. And it doesn't necessarily work in a musical, I guess. But Well, not necessarily for a musical, but for me as a creative person in general, I am all about the first impulse. And I am all about that first time through and about the, like, you're about to fall down the stairs and you just catch yourself feeling. For whatever reason, it doesn't work in the theater, but to, to recapture that feeling was really was really really important to me I just feel really grateful that there's space in my life that they that they all can fit it has made me a better writer I mean we'll see with this next batch of singer-songwriter songs that that I have basically made during the pandemic I think they're better for having done I mean they're they are really just like singer-songwriter pop songs about a relationship I had I mean you can't get more like down the middle than that um, as far as like making records and touring I think they're better for having done the musical this was part one of two of my conversation with Aaron keep listening as I think part two gets even better we would like to thank Aaron for talking with us you can catch up with her latest at AaronMcCune.com. that's M-C-K-E-O-W-N go to AboveTheBasement.com you can sign up for our newsletter listen, subscribe to our podcast like our Facebook page follow us on Twitter and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram we are everywhere from all of us at Above the Basement thank you for listening tell your friends and remember Boston music like its history is unique <laughs>